This is the last response uh, for these two days of question and answers for that that I got from the president's team, and that is, let's just assume he did it. So what? Abuse of power is an exceedingly difficult theory to use to impeach a president. The judge says, if the Congress can't enforce its subpoenas in court, then what remedy is there? And the Justice Department lawyer's response is, impeachment. Impeachment. You can't make this up. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. As Adam Schiff and the rest of the venerable House managers continues to present Shakespeare and James Baldwin to the Duck Dynasty and Pizzagate crowd. God, these people, their amazing rhetoric is lost on the GOP senators. I'm still with Chuck Schumer. An acquittal of Trump if the Republicans keep refusing a real trial, will not acquit him. This will be like the OJ jury. You know, the jury says not guilty for their own jury nullification purposes, but everybody knows he's guilty. He was guilty in the wrongful death case, and history judges him guilty, and then OJ ends up in jail for other crimes. You know, Brett Kavanaugh, too, the non-acquittal acquittal, I might believe too piously that the truth always has the last word, but when the Republicans in the Senate refused to give the FBI one damn week to investigate the evidence and testimony about Brett Kavanaugh's sexual misconduct, they didn't even look at or question his crazy demeanor in that trial. That to me, was credible in the extreme. They put him on the Supreme Court, but under a cloud. He didn't get a chance to clear his name. And until history brings all the facts to light, he'll still be, in the words of the Mueller report, not exonerated. Anyway, that's my hope for this trial. And Adam Schiff, if you're listening, I hope you can find the 30,000 operating systems that are missing from each individual Republican senator's heart, soul, and brain. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press, by which I mean Trumpcast. We'll be happy to have you back, Congressman Schiff, anytime. My guest today is Chrissy Stroop. Chrissy Stroop is an ex-evangelical writer who co-edited with Lauren O'Neill the book Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church, in which she and Lauren tell their stories of leaving the evangelical movement, and they've created a compendium of other stories of leaving the movement. She is also a Russian history PhD, and I'm very excited to talk to her. Welcome to Trumpcast, Chrissy. Thanks so much for having me, Virginia. I've been wanting to have you on for so long, and partly because my partner, Richard Stanislaw, is an ex-evangelical, an ex-evangelical, and has followed your work for a while. And this story is an extraordinarily important one for the United States of America. Thank you. I certainly agree that it is. And it's been a bit frustrating trying to sort of break through into the public sphere and get a hearing for survivors of kind of toxic authoritarian religion. Yeah. But I think that the Trump moment has kind of opened up the possibility there as people scratch their heads. Why are these evangelicals supporting Trump? And, you know, now they're somewhat more more willing to listen to people who have really lived that kind of conservative white evangelical subculture. Tell us your own kind of coming of age in the evangelical church and also why that phrase evangelical church is itself kind of odd and misleading and suggests a monolith. Sure. Well, first, let me say that, you know, when, it, when we talk about 
white evangelical subculture in particular, there are a lot of a lot of things where there are a great deal of similarities among, you know, 70 to 80 percent of people who could be identified that way. So while it's true that it's not a monolith, I am a little bit unsympathetic to criticism based on that, hmm. of speaking out against kind of evangelicalism or evangelical subculture, because evangelical subculture is overwhelmingly far right wing, informed by conspiracy hmm. theories, applying beliefs in Bible prophecy to politics and so forth in ways that are hmm. very dangerous. And mm-hmm. also, you know, proponents of corporal punishment for children, sometimes really quite extreme, pervaded by sexual abuse scandals, as we're starting to see with the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of institutional connections. Evangelicals, even though they come from a lot of different denominations, they consume a lot of the same sort of cultural products. So Mm. there are whole parallel industries, evangelical books, Christian bookstores, Christian movies, really awful stuff with Kirk Cameron, (laughs) the whole CCM, contemporary Christian music industry. Yeah. And when you grow up in that kind of subculture, you can be just almost pretty much isolated within it. Hmm. And then there are other institutions like missionary organizations, parachurch ministries. And so it's not like you only learn about things from people in your church. Yeah. So in my case, you know, I, I don't really remember a time when church wasn't the center of my social world until I kind of started coming into my own as an adult. Mm -hmm. Church and Christian school, once I was enrolled into that. My dad, when I was born, was a high school marching band director, and then he did Hmm. freelance sound engineering and composing and music stuff for a while. But for most of my life, he's been a music minister in evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. And my mom has been a Christian school teacher ever since her own kids were old enough to go to school. And Christian schools, they tend to expect you to, if you're a parent who teaches or or works on staff in one of them, to send your kids to the school. And they used to offer full tuition waivers, but now it's usually just a discount that increases with seniority. Hmm. So I never had a choice about where to go to school. And when I was in elementary school... I don't think I, I wouldn't have really had any reason to want to go to public school. But when I started to see a little bit more of what was out there, you know, particularly because we moved from the Indianapolis area of Indiana to Colorado Springs, Colorado mm-hmm. in 1993, and I ended up in public school for half a year in sixth grade, and hmm. I made a couple of friends. I wanted to stay in public school at that point, but my parents wouldn't let me. And the only reason that I ended up in a public school at all was because we moved in the middle of the year. And then after that, my mom was a teacher at Colorado Springs. Christian school and I ended up going there. And it was even more extreme, more fundamentalist than Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis. And Hmm. eventually we moved back to Indianapolis and I graduated from Heritage. But, you know, both of those schools taught young earth creationism, mobilized us for right-wing politics, taught us that abortion is murder, all that sort of stuff. Walk me through, I don't know what it is, a sex ed or biology class that teaches that abortion is murder. What does it Mm -hmm. look like? Like, one of the things that interests me about the anti-abortion movement is how obsessive it is about gynecology. As a woman, it is amazing to see, I mean, there were, by the time you were out of college, when Paul Ryan was running with Mitt Romney, there was discussions of something trans intravaginal exams or something or the use of certain kinds of (laughs) wands that they wanted to prohibit in gynecological exams. In any case, I just wonder how if this is part of the air you breathe that it's murder. Is there a class in conception and endometrial linings that then somehow generates a conversation about whether birth begins at conception? Just what does it look like when it's under the aegis of science? In Christian school and in church, I remember getting present 
presentations from people who volunteered for CPCs, for example. These crisis pregnancy centers, which, as you know, are major sources of disinformation. They've been spreading lies that, you know, most women regret, regret abortions, mm. that uh, abortions can cause health problems down the line, that they're linked to breast cancer and so forth. And they try very aggressively to pull women in in competition with clinics that do offer abortion. So I remember we had we had volunteers from these organizations, women for the most part, addressing us. So this is from the time I was five or six years old in assemblies in uh, church and Christian school, just telling us that, you know, there are these millions of babies being murdered. It's this terrible thing. Donate some diapers and some food and stuff so we can help get women away from this terrible abortion machine. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a little bit older when you talk about sex ed. Abortion wasn't really a topic that came up in it. Our sex ed was really, really skewed, though. In sixth grade, the first half of sixth grade, when I was still in Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. we had this program called CPR, Creating Positive Relationships, is what it stood for. So they took these questions, you know, that you could submit anonymously. And so, of course, some kid asked, well, how far is it appropriate to go with your boyfriend or girlfriend? And I remember that they shamed us for anyone even wanting to ask that question. Mm. And then they told us, but, you know, like, if you're so unspiritual that you really want to think about this and you really want to have a rule, you should do as little bit as as you can because it's risky, but definitely stay away from the underwear zone. They used the phrase the underwear Hmm. zone. Hmm. Okay. So anything that might typically be covered by underwear is totally off limits. So second base then basically might be okay if you're avoiding (laughs) the underwear zone. Yeah, a moral education going on during the school day. So you're getting some idea of maybe how sex operates or it has something to do with your underwear and also (laughs) some idea of maybe what abortion is or something like that. But what seems to be the gaslighting, and and incidentally, this anthology is very compelling and I'm so glad that these stories are out there now. Thank you. And I know other ex-evangelicals are grateful too. But um, is that the schools, in order to qualify as high schools, need to at least have a fig leaf of a secular education. I mean, they don't want you not getting into college at all because you haven't learned, you know, any mathematics or whatever. I mean, yeah, it very much depends on the type of Christian schools. So there are Christian schools that are just little sort of fly-by-night church schools that use just really poor curricula. Some homeschoolers use these kinds of curricula as well that just don't prepare you for anything. The worst of the worst, I think, are the ACE schools, Accelerated Christian Education. Hmm. They're abusive in in many ways, and they don't prepare kids to go to college. But I did go to the kind of Christian school that, yes, they prepare kids to go to college, and it creates a lot of weird cognitive dissonance. Yes, that's what Richard, again, my partner, has said that, you know, on the one hand, there's enough prosperity gospel and success creeds in Christian schools so that they don't want to graduate people that can't hold their head up and say, I go to this, you know, decent college. These are middle class people wanting to shore up their middle class identity. At the same time, you know, when they're supposed to be learning biology, they're learning that, you know, a lot about how liberals kill their children, kill their babies, and a lot of cultural war stuff. And it's just a mm-hmm. lot for the brain to take in. You know, there must be some time where they're explaining the Krebs cycle or polynomials, and you are like, oh, right, okay, I'm getting an education how the world works. And then it lurches <laughs> ominously into this other ter- Fox News territory. And managing that seems to be one of the kind of most difficult parts on a young brain 
Yeah, it launched me into a kind of serious crisis of faith around the age of 16. They were teaching us math. And a, a lot of like church school kids and homeschool, Christian homeschool kids, they don't get good math skills. But, you know, we offered calculus. I took up through pre-calc. I took physics. And I think we had like a regular high school physics textbook. You know, physics is one of those things that it's really hard for ideology to affect it too much, right? But biology is much more controversial. So back in high school at Heritage, Christian school, we had Christian textbooks for sure for freshman biology. And they had just a lot of false information about so-called creation science and them and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mixed in with true information, you know, some basics of biological classification, how cells work. Exactly. Mitosis is still fair game. That's not like a own the libs thing. Yeah, mitosis, meiosis. And I actually happened to take AP biology mm. at this school as well, ah. which they did offer. But AP biology was super weird. I had it with the same teacher that I had for chemistry. And he was like this apocalyptic mystic. He hmm. would start his classes with kind of a devotion that he called a thought. And a lot of teachers in Christian schools, they'll start class with a prayer or like a brief devotional thought, but well, his were not brief at all because he would ramble on and on. And he was totally obsessed with the end times and the rapture, the second coming. And so he would start a class with something like, so I had this dream that it was judgment day and Christ was seated on the white throne of judgment and he was beginning to separate the sheep from the goats and I was looking very nervously running up and down to see if any of my students were among the goats. And I was so happy to see that they weren't. And he would go on and on like this and, wow. you know, kind of talk about how, look at all this sin is increasing in the world. It must be the year of Noah. Did you mm. hear they're genetically engineering red heifers to sacrifice on the mm. temple mounts? In conclusion, Christ is probably coming back this fall around Yom Kippur. And he said that both years I had him. Wow. <laughs> both, right, exactly. The millennia, it's always they miss the date by a little bit, but it's next year. And the other thing about AP Biology was we did have to have like a standard college textbook, you know, so it was actually a regular secular introductory college textbook mm -hmm. on biology. Mm -hmm. But he would not teach us the evolution chapters. However, he told us to read them on our own and regurgitate them for the exam hmm. because lying for Jesus is okay, I mm. guess, when you need to get an exam score mm -hmm. so you can get these credentials so you can be an elite culture warrior. I don't know if you listened to the podcast about Heaven's Gate, which was hosted by Glenn Washington. He's a black man and he grew up in a segregationist racist cult. Wow. One of the things about his story that sounds quite similar to yours and people leaving evangelicalism is that it's the tools that they're taught that end up being how they dismantle the religion, get some distance from it. So Glenn decided to be as committed as any kid to learning scripture, like the best at it. And then he would find contradictions in scripture, you know, the the way some some people use scripture to push back on forms of Christianity. And then he realized that, you know, the leaders didn't really know what they were talking about, that they couldn't quote chapter and verse the way he could. And that loosened his relation to it. And then he was able to leave. And it sounds like for you and some of the stories in Empty the Pews are about people who, you know, like Nietzsche says, God is dead. We've killed him, you and I. What Nietzsche means is God or the fiction of God engendered an interest in understanding the world and science. And then the tools of science dismantled God. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So I mean, yeah. it, it sounds a little bit like you were a very good student. And even if you have echoing in your ears, the liberals are out there, they're killing babies, the climate denial, you know, whatever climate thing doesn't exist. If you learned enough science to do the SAT, it must have introduced some doubt of the rest of the stuff you were learning. Oh, it did. It was very painful for me to deal with that. And it started a very protracted crisis of faith for me that just it went on for a really long time. Because when you know, you're basically programmed as a child with intense fear of hell and with all these false ideas by your caregivers. And, mm. you know, the only people that you're sure you can trust. And you're also told your entire life that you can't trust your own thoughts and feelings. You can't trust your own doubts. Hmm. They're probably from the devil. You know, it, it is hard to break away from that. But yes, it is often the most conscientious and scrupulous uh, and studious believers who do break away Hmm. because they start to see too many contradictions and too much hypocrisy. But it can be a difficult thing to work through. I mean, you end up feeling like a traitor to your family. Yeah. And, you know, I also always felt off and different and uncomfortable in my own skin for reasons that uh, weren't entirely intellectual. In fact, I think it was the kind of underlying repression of queer gender and sexuality in me that probably made me such a cerebral kid in the first hmm, place. Yeah. And I guess there were likely a lot of other uh, factors going on. It's typical for the oldest child in the family to be very conscientious and cautious and scrupulous. But yeah, I always just felt off and I couldn't understand why. So I kind of took a step back and just became an observer of everything that I was that, that surrounded me mm-hmm. as I was going through my life, you know, and that helped me to see patterns and to become a good student. And in high school, they taught us apologetics and they taught us the tools of critical thinking that we were supposed to use to uh, fight against people who were non-Christian or liberal and very much including liberal Christians because they're not real Christians to mm-hmm. people who think this way. They've become heretics. They, If they've given up on things like young earth creationism, mm-hmm. they're not really saved. You're not supposed to turn those tools of critical thinking back on the ideology that you've been indoctrinated in your entire life. But for some people, it becomes impossible not to. Right. And it creates these very painful doubts. In spite of evangelicalism not being a monolith, it surprised me the similarities in some of the stories. So maybe if you can continue telling your story, how you left the pew yourself, maybe you can, for listeners, hit the highlights of some of the other empty the pews survivors and people in your anthology. So it doesn't surprise me at all that a lot of the common themes uh, have to do with um, gender and sexuality and queerness, because Mm -hmm. this kind of authoritarian subculture is just intensely patriarchal. Yeah. And uh, most of the people who uh, contributed to Empty the Pews are ex-evangelicals. There are a couple ex-Catholics, a couple ex-Mormons. And Laura, uh, Lauren, Lauren O'Neill, my co-editor, Yeah, you know, I think she's the only former mainline Christian in the group, but even she talks about the fear of hellfire, which is, which is another major theme, you know, just the fear and the abuse that is used to control people mm-hmm. and the isolation. So all of these are things that we associate with individually abusive situations. An authoritarian ideology is an abusive ideology. Gaslighting is a feature of it, and there tends to be a lot of abuse that happens, physical, sexual, spiritual emotional in these kinds of authoritarian religious communities. So fundamentalism is kind of authoritarianism in microcosm or on the margins and authoritarianism it's or fascism, it's sort of fundamentalism in, in power. Um, huh. Any fundamentalist religious group, you're going to find a lot of these overlapping characteristics. Interesting. And yeah, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, being taught this awful lesson about the nails in Jesus's wrists um, in Episcopalian Sunday school. You know, um, Lauren 
grew up in mainline Presbyterian Sunday school and then became a Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she was horrified by the anti-LGBTQ doctrine, the hell doctrine, and eventually was able to drop that. Um, mm. And, you know, even I don't remember ever having a lesson where we actually had to sort of like stick something in our wrists to try to feel the pain of the nails. <laughs> Though I do remember being told that we caused Christ's pain. You know, uh, in Sunday yeah. school, in Christian school, our sins drove the nails in his hands. So mm-hmm. lots and lots of guilt there. For my own story, a kind of definitive moment came, I guess, when I was around 16 years old in high school, read the entire Bible through for the first time, found a lot of things that bothered me mm-hmm. and and some contradictions and I went to talk to our pastor about it, who was also um, a Bible teacher at our Christian school. He had a doctorate in theology from some fundamentalist Bible college, and we all thought he was super intellectual. And me Hmm. being kind of intellectual identifying kid, you know, or at least a studious kid, I thought he would be a good person to talk to. Mm -hmm. And at first he seemed sympathetic about my doubts. He gave me a book of apologetics to go read and then come back and talk to him again. Mm -hmm. And it was in question and answer format. I don't remember the exact book, but I do remember finding the answers just sort of too glib and unsatisfying. So -hmm. when I went back and told him that I was still doubting, you know, then he turns the tables and now the problem is with me. I Mm. must be harboring some sin in his life. That was the exact, in my life, um, that was the exact phrase that he used because I wasn't reading the Bible through the Holy Spirit. So something in me was stopping me from doing that. I had opened myself up to demonic influences. Mm -hmm. Mm. Kind of the only good thing I can say about this pastor is that he also thought that hell might not be eternal conscious torment. There's a possibility it might be just annihilation, slightly more humane, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You take what you can get. (laughs) But still, I was afraid that hell was eternal conscious torment. There was a way that you did an impression of your teacher saying those things that makes me think that you were able to preserve a sense of irony Like, when you can do someone's (laughs) voice like that, it's not coming to you unmediated. You must have had some some friends that at least rolled their eyes. I can't believe that you walked away from that uh, apologetics professor with his idea of what hell was and didn't say, oh, for fuck's sake. No, I was very afraid that hell was very real at that time. I considered, Uh, you know, I was reading Romans and I considered maybe uh, Calvinism is true and I'm destined to predestined to be part of the reprobates. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, There was a time in high school when I thought I was going to become very spiritual by, you know, pledging to God to stop masturbating. And then when Hmm. I failed to do that, I thought I had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and was going to hell no matter what I did. And I had to be talked down from that. And I had a palpable lump of anxiety in my chest for about a week, as far as I recall, and couldn't sleep. But yeah, we also could have a certain degree of irony about some of the things in our environment. You know, some of my friends and I in, in the school, and I tended to be in like the nerdy crowd. Yeah, we might have thought that uh, Mr. Terry, the chemistry and AP biology teacher, was a little bit ridiculous in mm-hmm, some ways, mm-hmm. um, particularly trying to to predict like something close to the date of the rapture itself, even though we all believed in the rapture. Okay. Um, there was also a thing that happened when I was in high school where um, the uh, at that time they'd stopped calling... Uh, calling this 
this position superintendent and they started calling it CEO. So this relatively new CEO hmm. of the school, um, he created a completely new position, okay. brought in one of his friends and cronies to fill that position. It was called director of discipleship. Okay. We called him director of hanging out with the cool kids because it <laughs> seems like that was all that he did in his office. Got it. So he had some responsibilities for organizing chapels and things. We had, we had weekly chapels and then we would have a spiritual emphasis week every year where there would be a chapel every week. So yeah, usually we didn't have just like basic assemblies. They were like chapels, like worship services. And we found out that he had just created this position out of whole cloth for his friend hmm. and heard through the grapevine that it was the second highest paid position in the school after him. Yeah. So like all these other people had all this seniority and um, I don't 100% know that that's true, but I think it probably mm. is. It was the information that sort of went around the whisper chain at the time, you know. There definitely was a lot of disillusionment with what had happened with this new position. And so the next year he had to teach Bible. And yeah, minority friends and I did not have much respect for this guy. Hmm. So we would sit in the back of uh, his classroom and play chess on a miniature chess set. And I think he didn't really feel like he had enough sort of like social cachet to stop us or give us a detention because we would also answer questions. And, you know, we were the smart kids. Unfortunately, though, of the main friend group that I had in high school, I'm the only one who has come out on the other side and is not a right wing fundamentalist of some sort now. Interesting. Right. And you're like, where's that chess playing brain and slight rebellion? I like that your rebellion was playing chess in the back of the room. <laughs> it's hardly like shooting smack, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> Thanks. We had Stephen Hassan, who is a former Mooney on the show. Yeah, I've talked to him. Yeah, he's he's very interesting. But one of the things he describes very well, and I wonder if this was your experience, is a moment where he was in the middle of being deprogrammed. It was very formal with him. And he said, um, he, he fought back against his parents and he said, I don't care if Reverend Moon is Hitler, I'm going to follow him to the end. And wow. as he said that, he physically felt a kind of revulsion or nausea. or like, And it was the beginning of driving a wedge between the things I'm saying and who I am. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, because it's so hard to imagine you, Chrissy, now, I know you from Twitter, I know you from your writing, I know you from your your like vigorous crusading persona, and it's just <laughs> completely impossible for me to imagine you having an earnest conversation about how you might, someone explaining to you how masturbating might send you to hell. It's just with, <laughs> given your brain and Brio, like when you repeated stuff like that back, did you share Stephen and Hassan's experience of some signal in you that I'm participating in a lie and I got to get out of this? Like, but what did that flicker sound mm -hmm. like? Alienated from your own professed beliefs. That's what I'm interested in. I internalized a lot of the guilt. I felt a lot of guilt about, you know, what they call impure thoughts and lust and that sort of thing. I think it took me a while to really get myself deprogrammed from that. But I do remember a moment when uh, we had a sort of like, I like to call it fake sex ed day mm -hmm. in seventh grade at Colorado Springs Christian Middle School. So they made it like a retreat day, such bullshit. Mm -hmm. And they took us somewhere I think they separated the boys and girls for a while to talk about certain things. But we were all together in, in an assembly at the end of the day, and they were telling us things like, you know, 
And with a boyfriend or girlfriend, you should never do anything that you wouldn't be comfortable doing with someone else's husband or wife, because Mm. that would be cheating on their future spouse and on your future spouse. Oh, yeah. So this really intense, extreme purity culture, mixed in, of course, with a lot of fear-mongering diseases, diseases, pregnancy, pregnancy, condoms don't work, condoms can't stop the AIDS virus. Mm. And um, then, you know, they asked us to uh, prayerfully consider signing these purity pledges that they had. This was the kind of the the pitch that they built up to. They started Mm. playing this like emotional music and we all had to go sit by ourselves and quote unquote prayerfully consider whether we could sign these purity pledges. And I do remember feeling like this is manipulative. Mm. You know, even if I wasn't ready to say God doesn't care who you have sex with or God isn't real, I think I was still probably all in like, yeah, sex is only supposed to be between a man and a woman in marriage. But I remember being just really uncomfortable with that. And like everybody signed it because we didn't know if we'd be expelled if we didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. The concept of, of disliking the tactics and the marketing scheme and just the feeling of being, you know, subject to propaganda and proselytizing that sometimes Mm -hmm. that is the first You know, you just are like, oh, go easy here. Like, I share a lot of your premises, but I want to come to them without this, like, marketing push. You know, some people just don't like to be sold. And then by high school, I did some summer honors programs at Indiana State University. So I met some public school kids. I even got to go to some public school dances. I even went to a real prom because my school did not have dances, right? Mm. We had Christmas banquet and junior senior banquet, okay. complete with ridiculous Christian entertainment. One year it was a Christian ventriloquist oh. who um, well, well, you well. Know, had one, one of his puppets was like an elderly woman named Aunt Tilly who sang a kind of classic altar call hymn. So, yeah. Wholesome Christian entertainment. (laughs) But so I admitted these other kids, you know, and was trying to have these conversations with them about what I believed. And yeah, I felt intense discomfort at that point, thinking that, you know, these people are going to hell and I have to tell them that I think the only way to go to heaven is to believe in Jesus. It was super uncomfortable. When did the break happen? Because it sounds like on all axes, intellectual, moral, physical even, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that there was something that just like it had to break. And when did that paradigm shift happen? I think that it had to break or I was going to die. Like, I, I literally mean that because I used to think about suicide quite a lot. And I used to really consider myself a, an impossible person who shouldn't exist. I felt like a traitor to my family. And now I see that that's abusive programming and that no one should mm. have to feel that way for having different mm-hmm. religious and political convictions than their family. So one breaking point came after my third year at Ball State University when I studied abroad in Germany and England. And I had some distance from America and I was keeping a journal. You know, I was beginning to see, to, to break away from the conservative politics. Now, the first presidential election I could vote in was in 2000, and I voted for George W. Bush over the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. But by 2004, I voted for John Kerry, you know, and I haven't voted for a Republican since, I don't think, maybe mm-hmm. for something like state secretary of education. But mm-hmm. there was that moment when I, I kind of came to a moment of clarity when studying abroad that I realized I couldn't be evangelical anymore. Yep. I still very much was going to try to hold on to some kind of Christian identity But that was hard to do because, uh, you know, we had kind of been taught this all or nothing fundamentalism. And so if you stop believing in the young earth creationism, if you stop believing that it's wrong to be gay or trans or anything like that, you know, you might as well just give up the whole faith Mm -hmm. because you're not a real Christian anyway. Hmm. That was a hard moment. And I just kind of 
you know, I went and taught English in Russia for a year. I went and I had some sexual experiences, um, not being married, that I, at first I still had a lot of guilt around. Mm -hmm. And I then went to grad school at Stanford and I continued just kind of having these doubts, but I wasn't very vocal about it. Mm -hmm. And at Stanford, I still tried to hold on to some kind of Christian identity to at least like not shake things up so much with my family. Like going to church? Uh, sometimes. Okay. And so eventually I ended up going to St. Bede's Episcopal Church. It's a nice little Episcopal Church in mm -hmm. Menlo Park, California. Mm -hmm. I didn't go every week. But eventually in February of 2012, I even got myself confirmed Episcopalian. Mm. Did your parents disapprove of that? Because so, one thing, it is also hard for people outside Christianity to, to, to understand is that even the mainline Protestant religions can seem like a moment of break with the megachurch style religion that you had at some point in your childhood. Anyway, so when you were confirmed Episcopalian and, and especially with the Episcopal Church ordaining women and being very pro-gay or ultimately very pro-gay, did that hurt your relationship with your family? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, when I became vocal about occasionally, like I would post on Facebook that like my parents could see that Christian schools are teaching extremism. And I became, you know, a very vocal proponent of universal health care, mm -hmm. a very vocal opponent of Prop 8 in California during that whole thing. Yep. But, you know, when my mom would see like a post where I said that Christian schools teach extremism, um, I would like cry and break down and say, okay, mom, I still need Jesus. And, you know, it was just really, I had a really hard time hurting my mom, yes. whose identity is very wrapped up in being a Christian school teacher. So I started using Facebook, um, you know, friend groups. And so mm -hmm. um, using the privacy settings and not showing everyone everything. And I just kept it kind of quiet again for a while. Mm -hmm. um, when I actually became Episcopalian, I don't think it was that big a deal to my parents at that mm -hmm. point. But you're right. I mean... For uh, most evangelical Protestants, that would be considered not being a real Christian. So if you're like Southern Baptist, but you marry someone who's Wesleyan and then you decide to go to the Wesleyan church, like mm -hmm. I think most white evangelicals these days are not going to care. Mm -hmm. Specific denomination really meant nothing to us um, in my in my upbringing. It didn't matter at all because like, OK, apparently God's allowed to be confusing on certain things like predestination or free will, for example. But obviously, God is super clear on gayness is totally wrong. Abortion must be banned. Young Earth creationism is true and everyone has to vote for Republicans. Yeah. And so if you do all that, you're in the club. You know, whether you're a Baptist or Wesleyan or a Nazarene or, you know, something else mm -hmm. um, within the evangelical fold, a Pentecostal, non-denominational, we, we didn't care. We stopped caring about that. But yeah, Episcopalian is, is right out because they allow for belief in evolution and for democratic politics. Also, because they have a hierarchy to the Archbishop of Canterbury, they do take public, like the church takes positions. The Episcopal Church takes positions on everything from power to gay rights to gay marriage and also mm -hmm. it it had that schism at an important time where it broke with the Anglican Church over gay stuff so I can imagine it's the you know it seems like the lefty church yeah even though it's not <laughs> okay well that's the other thing is it seems like you needed a transition and you continued to go to the Episcopal Church. But was there a feeling that all of this is going to drop out from under you pretty soon or sometime? I don't know. I guess sometimes I entertain thoughts like that. I was going through other things, too, like getting married and divorced in the middle of grad school. Like, I clearly 
was not well. But, you know, I pushed through grad school. I finished in 2012 and I went to teach in a Russian university for a while, still hoping eventually to get an American tenure track job and um, become a professor of Russian history back in the United States. At a secular university? Yes, yes, definitely at a secular university. And it was in Moscow, living in Moscow, where the Anglican church was really far away from where I lived and also really far away. You had to walk like 20 more minutes after you got off the, the nearest metro station. And so I kept telling myself, oh, I'm really tired today. I'll go to church next Sunday. And a few months into that, I just realized I really don't want to go to church anymore. Hmm. And I was probably sort of quasi-identifying as agnostic at that point. And it wasn't really till 2014, 2015 that I started um, publishing certain things that are critical of evangelical subculture, or critical of right-wing religion, including, you know, the Orthodox Church in Russia and the stances that it takes on things. So I started to find my voice, but especially after evangelicals ended up becoming so supportive of Trump, I've just been really, really vocal, even though for myself personally, I had moved pretty far away by that time. And there was another kind of defining moment that I, I, it's, it's really weird how things sort of worked out for me. But as I mentioned before, my whole life, I had this sense of just being different and I didn't know what it meant. And I had this sense of being uncomfortable in my own skin, my body. And so after finally kind of getting to that point where I wasn't going to church for a while, at age 33, I finally realized I was queer and mm-hmm. I hadn't had the space or the mental toolkit to see it before. And the really funny thing about that is that as soon as I had that realization that this had been something that was repressed and was going on underneath, I basically lost my remaining visceral fear of hell. Ah. I had stopped believing in hell more than a decade prior to that, but I still had fear of hell that would come back and sometimes would be very intense. Like in your cells. Yeah. As soon as I realized, you know, more about myself that it had been impossible to be in conservative Christianity... I just stopped being afraid of hell. Wow. And that was a big break. I've been hearing all these stories following the Weinstein trial, following in contact with some of Epstein's victims, and just this sort of moment, like you've you've made it this thing, the like ne plus ultra of horror, you know, something. It's hell or it's Epstein murdering you, basically, if you dissent mm. and getting free of that fear that's paralyzed you becomes this it's like all these new vistas open up to you as possibilities like i could Mm -hmm. actually blow the whistle on this guy and if i am going to go to hell it's like huckleberry finn all right then i'll go to hell you know yeah because you know if god's sense of morality is that just awful yeah then i have to go to hell on moral principle (laughs) yes exactly exactly it's my obligation i love that so it seems like you had fallen out with the republican party in advance of coming out and and ultimately transitioning and having this revelation about hell no longer being binding on you that sort of distancing yourself from the the white nationalism that reza aslan you know has said the church um, or the evangelical movement has come to be double for, like be a proxy for. Mm-hmm. But that that you started to have doubts about that way sooner even than your confidence in your in your sexuality and your gender identity. Although I would say that I didn't really begin to understand race in America very well until I was in grad school and I had this Chinese American friend who was a grad student at Berkeley. And, you know, he introduced me to um, Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Knapsack of White Privilege. Hmm. And um, 
so at that point, I began, you know, really trying to learn seriously uh, about how privilege works and about the the subtle ways that race works and reading and paying more attention to people of color on that. So I wouldn't say that I had any kind of revelation about that very early on. You know, I also come from these evangelicals with pretensions to respectability. We thought that we were not racist. And a lot of evangelicals will tell you that they are not racist, but they don't recognize any kind of systemic issues. They really don't do that kind of like systemic thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very convenient for them. And certain racial attitudes will come out that are contradictory to their self-reported feelings. So there's very striking data on how white evangelicals are, you know, the most enthusiastic demographic in America for things like the Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. But, you know, their self-reported feelings toward racial minorities are positive. That's what they say because they want people to think that. And they also want to think that it's just what's in your individual heart. They don't want to see systemic racism in policing. I've been snapped at by a relative for bringing that sort of thing up. Hmm. I've got one relative, the most pro-Trump relative that I have, who's like very enthusiastic and vocally pro-Trump, who will tell you he's not racist till he's blue in the face. And then in the next moment, he'll be like, oh, those Black Lives Matter, that's just a bunch of thugs. Mm. I should point out that Frank Schaefer does the foreword to your book and his father, right, was a like big deal theologian or or author of various apologetics among mm-hmm. evangelicals. His falling out with the faith or with evangelicals, it really comes down to like Christianity's improbable. We're in two crises, the sex abuse meltdown in the Catholic Church, which you know people like one of my heroes Richard Rohr says the Catholic Church is probably not long for this world because of this, at least in America. From his lips to God's ears. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and I think God listens to him because he's still, you know, a hermit and a priest, Catholic priest. And then the other crisis in Protestantism that Schaefer cites in your book is the trumping, he calls it, of white evangelicalism. So you've got two mm-hmm. things among Catholics, like the kind of increasing thought that the Catholic Church in America anyway is like a machine to protect child molesters. And then white evangelicalism, if it becomes a proxy or a pretext for Trumpism, you know, we're Trumpism as a fever pitch right now, but it won't be always. And it sounds right. like there's been like a purgative effect, like, you know, your cohort has really become very vocal about we knew where this was going this is where it was going to end up and take heed. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, of course, that there's all kinds of, you know, sexual abuse and sexual assault that's been covered up in evangelical churches as well. So I'd recommend everybody check out the Church 2 hashtag. There's been a lot that's been exposed in recent years. I've referred to this many times, actually. Southern Baptists are doing their part. The biggest chunk of evangelicals are, in some cases, doing their part to advance the Church 2 hashtag. Yeah. And so, you know, this has led to the Southern Baptist Church holding some important meetings to try to address this, but I don't think they're ever going to be able to effectively address it because it's the ideology itself. It's Mm. that authoritarianism, that patriarchy that causes this abuse to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, saying you're going to do better on paper doesn't mean much. I think that's right. How do you think all this ends? You point out quite hopefully in your own piece with Lauren that the numbers are way down for evangelicals. You know, the nuns, the people who answer, I have no formal religion or no religion at all on forms are way up. And that like a lot of groups that look very, very big and formidable in Trump times, that evangelicals are actually losing power. Is that still your impression? 
they're certainly losing numbers. Okay. Power is a little trickier, but there are far more of us than there are of them. Okay. They are unpopular. They're being called out by many of their children. And all of that is a good thing. America is rapidly secularizing. The nuns, the religiously unaffiliated, now represent 26% of the population. That's a huge jump from the 1990s. And sociologists have linked this causally to the culture wars and the association of Christianity with far-right politics. Right. So they're absolutely driving people away. But they're also willing to impose minority authoritarian rule for as long as they can. And when we have the Electoral College and gerrymandering and nobody's going to be willing to add Puerto Rico and D.C. as states. And um, there's also just lots of cheating and voter suppression. And they don't care about the rule of law and observing norms if they don't get to be in power. You know, there are serious questions about how we could possibly get past this within contemporary American realities. Most Americans don't want things to be the way they are. But most Americans are effectively disenfranchised by Mitch McConnell and, you know, the rest of the radicalized Republican Party Mm -hmm. that is very strongly supported by white evangelicals to a lesser extent, but still very significant extent. Also white Catholics, white Mormons. It doesn't matter that much that they are a small and diminishing percentage of the population. If they are a large percentage of the population in enough states that the Electoral College and the Senate tips their way. Uh, I hate ending there, but we have to. Chrissy, (laughs) thank you so much for being here. I really do recommend to everyone Empty the Pews. It's stories of leaving the church, but it hangs together as an overall picture of where the evangelical church has been and where it stands now and what an exit from it might look like. Thank you so much for being here, Chrissy. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. It's been lovely. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? If you get in touch with me on Twitter this week, go easy. I'm Page 88, and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And then head over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for that first year. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Melissa Kaplan produced our show today, and it was engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.